The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about making peace last. And actually, that's the name of this wonderful book that I have in front of me. It's called Making Peace Last a tool book for sustainable peace building. And it's by Professor Robert Resigliano. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. He has a fascinating uh, background and we had some things that we kind of had similar backgrounds. He's a professor in, in uh, the university of Wisconsin in, in um, Milwaukee. And I went to school in Madison and he also taught at the Harvard Research Project and Negotiation, which I went and studied with Bill Urey, who is a friend of his. And let me tell you what Bill Urey said about his book. He said, the big, no bigger challenge faces humanity than how to build peace. Isn't that the truth? In this insightful, provocative, and practical book, Robert Resigliano shows us how to take a systems approach, a very useful contribution by Bill Urey, William Urey, Harvard Negotiation Project, and author of The Third Side, Why We Fight and How We Can Stop. And he's also the author of several other books, and we've had him on our show. So we are just so thrilled. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert's background. Robert Rusigliano is the co-director of the Partnership for Sustainability and Peacebuilding at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where he teaches course, courses on systems and complex Complexity Approaches to Peacebuilding through the Department of Communications. He's also a former executive director of the Conflict Management Group and served as an associate director of the Harvard Research, Harvard Project on uh, Negotiation Project at Harvard Law School. And his uh, recent work has focused on applying systems theory to developing practical tools for sustainable peacebuilding. He has worked on negotiations and peace processes around the world, including Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan, Russia, Georgia, Colombia, South, South Africa, and elsewhere. And so we are just so thrilled that he's joining us. And you can see his picture and his bio and his book at our website at conflicthealing.com. So, Robert, thank you so much for joining us from Wisconsin. Thank you, Mari. So what motivated you to write this book, Making Peace Last, a Toolbox for Sustainable Peacebuilding? Well, Mari, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that we've had some similar backgrounds, and, 
and and you know both of us have been involved in, in mediating conflicts and dealing with disputes and, and and a lot of the work that you mentioned that I've been involved with in sort of bigger conflicts like in the Congo or in in Colombia or Iraq or Afghanistan um, you know what really began to to get to me was that we could be successful in the work that that we would do in sort of the mediation negotiation world so we might help people get an agreement or improve a relationship or, or have a productive dialogue the the problem that really began to uh, occupy my mind when I came to the university back in, in 2001 was even when we were successful at the mediation task, we were not successful in the sense that we weren't successful in the big picture. We weren't successful at, at helping these conflicts necessarily resolve themselves or produce uh, a, a big sort of systemic change. Mm-hmm. And And when I began to think about that more, um, you know, it, it's sort of depressing because if, if even when you're successful, you're not successful, um, what do you do? And, and it began to make me think that there was, while there was a necessary contribution that those of us who do the mediatory work can make in these situations, our success, success in the big picture, really depends on lots of other, lots of other factors. And the, the, the draw of, of systems thinking and complexity uh, science for me has been how do we, it's been helpful to get a handle on that big picture. What are all the other factors and how do they interrelate and how they intersect? So the motivation was really to say, how do we help um, those of us who are working in a particular discipline like negotiation or mediation or human rights or economic development or uh, public health, how do we in our disciplines be both successful at what we do, but also contribute to a bigger systemic change. And, and that's what—that's the inquiry that really led me on the path to eventually writing the book. No, I think it's fascinating. So, you know, what is peace building? How do you define that? It's, so it's, it's, a, it's a term that has um, evolved a lot over the last, say, 10 or 15 years. Um, it used to be defined much more narrowly to, to really mean uh, something much more like you know, mediation and making, getting to peace agreements or stopping violence. It is now much more generally accepted in uh, lots of places from the UN to the Department of Defense and, and in academia or certain parts of academia to refer to a, a much more holistic um, uh, Endeavor so that peace building really refers to any activity that helps build sustainable levels of human development and healthy processes of societal change. That's my definition. Um, but basically, they all, the thing they all have in common is that peace building is about how do you build more sustainable, just, uh, and 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 prosperous uh, societies. Yeah, it's it's like give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. It's, it's like, okay, so if we go in there as a mediator and we get a, a solution and people can shake hands and they feel good about each other and they go their separate way, that's great. But have they really acquired those skills so that they can kind of pay it forward, so to speak? Right. But, you know, right, I, yeah. and, and, you know and, I, and I just keep thinking what a great idea that is, but the problem that I question and, and I, you know, is 
so much of the peace really starts within our own selves, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the um, one of the one of the um, really important aspects of taking kind of a systems approach to, to peace building is the realization is the requirement that that in the words of a, a woman named Danella Meadows, who is a writer about on systems, a big systems thinker, she would say you you have to be humble before the system. And what she meant by that was that don't overestimate or don't put too much confidence in your ability as an, as an outsider to make change in a system. Just like I think, you, we, I think you would recognize, I would recognize that as a mediator, you can't make change in other people. Right. You could help them get an agreement, but they have to want it. And, and that's, that's, it's, it's very parallel on a much bigger scale when you talk about a whole sort of system or a country. Right. Where the, the, I, I use the phrase that systems change best when systems change themselves. Yeah. And our job is to work with the system, just like I think when, you know, when we do kind of more transformative mediation, the job is not to figure this out for the people involved. Right. It's to help them both be able to, but more importantly, want to resolve it. Right. And help them have a, a new understanding so that they have those tools to use whether the mediator is there or not, so right. that you can wean them, so that they're empowered to do it, right. and that's what you mean at the at the much lo- larger level is that 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 the you know because coming in as a third party and then leaving if you go into Afghanistan and then you leave and they don't have the skills themselves then you know you have to keep coming back which is okay I guess but it it doesn't make any it doesn't it's not the success that you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's in the sort of transformative mediation world, it would be saying, well, what we really care about is preventing disputes two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, not just solving dispute one. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting, in, in other fields, they've kind of come to the same um, realization. So the, the, I, I show a, there, there's a, there's a TED talk that I show a clip of in one of my classes um, about a, a person who was with Engineers Without Borders, and he was talking about the story of building these um, gravity-fed uh, sanitary water systems. And they, they'd, put these, they'd put these spigots into these villages and they, where they, the, the clean water would come out, and they had pictures of people smiling and, and drinking the water. And he said the picture of these people smiling and drinking the water, he said the picture is a lie. He said it wasn't a lie when we took it. I mean, it really did happen. But what happened was that in a lot of these villages where they built these wells, um, a very large percentage of them within 18 months had broken down. Mm. <laughs> and the, the punchline to the story, I won't go into the whole story, but the punchline to the story was he was on site looking at one of these wells that had broken down after 18 months, and he noticed about a, a few hundred yards away there was another um, um, spigot, another well that had been built. And he said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's the system that the U.S. Agency for International Development built three years ago. Hmm. And so, basically, you know, not only did they, they did, it's just like we settled this one agreement, but then they had three and four more disagreements. Yeah, yeah. We built this well, but then 18 (laughs) months they they broke down, and they built another one, and 18 months later, that one broke down. Mm. And so they're seeing that, that, that doing development in this case, providing sanitary water to a village, is much more complicated than just building the well. Or having mm-hmm. someone else come from the outside and build the well, right. um, where people don't know how to maintain it and they don't have the parts and and and, and no one's necessarily responsible for it. 
So right. So it gets back to that holistic approach that not only do you have to teach them how to use it and enjoy it, but then you have to teach them how to maintain it and how to fix it and how to repair it and how to be, you know, be fair with it. And oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So so what is this? Tell me more about the systemic or complexity approach. How is it different from? Well, you're, I guess we're talking about what, what's already done. You know, you, you go in and you do it and then you leave. So, right, so right. what is that systematic uh, or complexity approach to explain that? So it's really, really you can think of two important differences, I think, or two important aspects of it. One is, um, one, one is, is, is a different way or a different set of tools for understanding problems and how to engage with them. So, um, so... I work a lot with organizations to do systems maps of, of a context. So I just did one with an organization um, who is uh, they're a donor and they, they make grants in Nigeria. Um, and we did a systems map of Nigeria because the, the, the reason to do that is to say it's, it's, the systems map is, is kind of like if you could do a super MRI of the human body in advance of a doctor making a diagnosis of a patient or deciding a course of treatment. So if you, if you have this sort of picture of what the system was, it's easier for you to figure out how to engage it and how to engage with it um, as opposed to sort of trying to impose change on it like we were talking about before. Right. Um, so at so one, one level, it's a set of tools. It's a set of tools for understanding these, these very complex contexts in a, in a, as, 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 as holistic systems. At another level, the systems approach is... Um, more of a paradigm shift. It's a change in how we engage. So, um, you know, I, I talk about that, that um, systems aren't problems to be fixed. Systems aren't broken. They are, they, are, they are what they are. They produce results like violence or poverty, and maybe we don't like those results. But that doesn't mean the system is broken. So what you have to do is work with the system. And remember that it's a system. Yeah, <laughs> I guess exactly. first you have to recognize that it's a system, and right. then that system. How does that system? How can that? Trans, how can you transform that system from right. that system so that it is workable within the context of the culture or whatever? Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, the 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 what it's not is is sort of the, the we love sort of the silver bullet approach to problem solving, which is let's find the one thing that's broken and fix that thing. Right. And, and societies are, are much more complicated than that. Um, so there's usually never one thing. It's, it's, it's this interrelationship amongst many things. Um, mm. and, and then we have to figure out how we, how we can best engage them and, and help, help the system to encourage us to, to evolve in ways that is to the benefit of those that live in the system. Um, so that, so it's, both a, it's both a set of tools, but it's also kind of a, it's also a paradigm shift in thinking about how to, how to engage. I mean, I work a lot with, with donor organizations um, uh, on on help challenging or helping them to challenge or rethink the whole development paradigm, for example, that it's not necessarily going in and and dumping in money or building things or training people. It's going in and working with these systems, um, and and um, it, it 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 changes how it changes how. Um, you, you would measure success. So success is not necessarily um, a, a glossy annual report where you say, you know, we built so many wells or we, 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 we built so many health clinics or trained so many nurses. Um, it's, um, it's about how 
you, the work that you did helped to help the system to evolve in a way that was more peaceful or more just or more or healthier. Um, however, whatever big sort of um, uh, metrics you, you would have for success, but it's usually something about that's about improving quality of life. It's about making context more peaceful, and that can be defined in various ways. But it's really about not necessarily individual things that you might change or, or build. It's about how you've engaged the system and how you've produced outcomes over time. Right. So why don't you give us some examples of the approach and how it's actually being used in, in practice? So we're, we're doing a, a lot of the, the work that I've done has been um, with uh, organizations who go in to do um, assessments. So it's, 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 a lot of it is policy-related. So it's, it might be working with – I've done work with the U.S. government uh, on a couple of, of, of assessment missions where we've gone into to countries and, and done, you know, hundreds of sort of interviews in the field and looked at lots of reports and, and so on. And then out of that produced an analysis and a systems map of that context and then used that map to help reflect on, well, how is the U.S. government engaging um, effectively or not effectively with that country? Um, what are the big, the big sort of social dynamics that they're trying to affect or they need to be affecting? Um, I've also we've also worked with um, smaller organizations, um, individual um, uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, small foundations, and and pretty much done something very similar, which is to help them develop their strategy uh, based on a, a view of the entire system. So thinking not just about their individual programs, but thinking about how to to implement their programs in ways that maximize their potential to contribute to systems change. Um, so that it's, it's largely the work that I've been doing lately has been on the sort of policy development, strategy development mm. level. You know, I, I went to um, the ACR, Association for Conflict Resolution Conference, and one of the things that just, like, was so exciting for me was to see all of these universities that are now actually doing uh, teaching like you're doing, teaching peace building, teaching systems change, teaching all this stuff, which there was never anything like that when I was in college. <laughs> you know, it's just like a whole new field. But one of the, you know, and I, I was fascinated by all this stuff, and I did a bunch of interviews there, but one of the women that I interviewed had, um, I forgot which country now, I'm really embarrassed, but we did a radio interview on it. One of the things that they were doing was doing novelas, uh, little novels, like in, I think it was one of the South American countries, was doing novels on radio that actually was changing how people think about each other. And um, bec and everybody was listening to the radio, so they would listen. Right. And there were, you know, families that were making peace, and they were from various cultures. And, they, and so these were, like, kind of exciting that... You know, people didn't have TVs, but they all had radio, whether they were doing their construction work or whether they were washing, you know, streets or whatever they were doing. They were all listening to the radio. So right. they decided to use the radio and it was very powerful and it was right. making changes. So right. I mean, that's that's just a little snippet of looking at the culture for itself. Right. And because that wouldn't be a big thing here. Everybody's got their iPods. Right. So, right. you know, that was tapping into what the culture was and then doing something that was like, you know, kind of like sexy novels that were really making a difference in in these cultural um, 
you know, the, these enemies, the cultural right. enemies were right. becoming right. friends and marrying each other on these novellas. It was, I thought it was very intriguing. Yeah, so, so the, 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 what I think a, the, the systems approach can do is help you to find those kinds of interventions. So yeah. basically looking at something that is, exists in that society, which is um, both that, the, the sort of culture of storytelling right. and the, the fact that people, uh, you know, radio penetration in, in, in places like Rwanda and Burundi um, uh, and, and other countries like that is very, very high. It's, it's low-tech, it's cheap. Um, it's very widespread, and so if you combine those two things, you actually find a, something that is a bit of a leverage point. That it's, it's an activity you can do that has both immediate impact. And that you know, someone would listen, maybe enjoy this novella. Right. But they over don't even time, know that they're learning pieces. Attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. They didn't even. That was the fun thing is they're listening to it, and it's like exciting and it's entertaining, and and it's brainwashing them for good. Um, but they don't even know it. I mean, they don't even know that it's a peace building. They just think it's really something that they enjoy listening to. But it and that, does. That's a, that's a great example of sort of what I was talking about: the system cha- changing itself. It's, yeah. It's basically, it's a capacity. It's it's a it's a within the system itself that if um, uh, tweaked a little bit. I mean, they didn't invent they didn't induce radios. I mean, they right, didn't right. telenovelas or radio right. novellas. Right. They just used that form and they adjusted the, they tweaked the content a little bit. So some of these programs, some of some of these, um, uh, like in Liberia, they they had one that was um, it was news broadcast that was uh, put together by com- combatants from uh, uh, both sides of the conflict. Hmm. So it, it had it was just this example of them working together. And the same, they did the same with um, novellas, where they had people combatants, former combatants, play characters in the right. novellas. Yeah. Which, so that's the exciting thing about it is is that it, it that systems by, by taking the kind of systems approach, really listening to the system, right? Seeing what assets are there, and what you know, sort of sort of problems or difficulties are there, uh, but seeing all those things together and saying, ah, oh, here it is. If we if we push here, you know, if we, if we, here's, a, here's a door that's ajar, maybe if we push it open a little bit more, we would actually see a, a, a much bigger rate of change or a much bigger type of change than we would see before. Right. And, and that's where, that's where you, if you think about, like, you know, the ultimate example of, of sort of leverage in a system is the example, the, the story about the, the butterfly flaps its wings in South America and it creates a tsunami in Asia, right. um, where basically a very small... Uh, in, intervention or change can get magnified by the, the system itself. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and that's this idea of nonlinear change, that the change doesn't necessarily happen by 1 plus 1 equals 2. It, it can be 1 um, plus 1 equals 27. I mean, it can, right. that, that's the idea of leverage. We get more bang for the buck. Yeah, um, and changing attitudes can change so much. You know, from right. a former hating someone to saying, oh, that person could be my friend. Right. So right. what would you do in Syria or Afghanistan? How, how would you do that? Well, I'm, I'm working with a group that's, that's um, uh, working on a piece about advice to people who are trying to make policy in Syria. Um, and and the, the big piece about it is is when you think, when, when people think about Syria or think about, it, you know, we're, we're the... The, the, the fighting come to an end and you were, you were trying to build, build a more peaceful, stable state in Syria, the, the, the big, some of the big what to do is, is what not to do. <laughs> and, and so oftentimes we do things like um, we, we want to see a stable democratic state, so we hold elections quickly. 
quick elections in general tend not to be all that effective mm. uh, because there's what, what I refer to as sort of fast and slow variables. So a fast variable are things that can be done in a short period of time, like negotiating an agreement. Even holding an election is, is a fairly fast variable. It can be done in weeks or months. Right. Building a democratic culture in a society, changing social attitudes of groups in conflict, that can take generations. That's a slow variable. Right. So one of the big issues is, is don't, don't confuse or don't think you can affect the slow variables quickly. Um, yeah. so you can't just build a democratic culture by holding an election. And in fact, you may actually make it worse. Um, so we see a lot of election, a lot of violence around, around elections. We see um, even elections that are not overly violent but are seen as illegitimate actually worsen or increase tensions between ethnic groups. Yeah, we all thought that Arab Spring, you know, was going to be just, you know, a, a huge success, which that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. So, so in a place like Syria, one of the first steps is, is, is thinking about um, what can be done in the short term, um, but also to keep your eye on we, we, what's going to help build toward longer-term change. So if you need, there needs to be reconciliation between groups. That's a slow variable. What's going to help get us on that road? Um, and, 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 don't, and don't think that you can, um, you can go from, from something that you can do quickly, like negotiate an agreement, to that, that slow piece. Um, the other piece actually is, relates to something you were talking about earlier, which is I, I use an approach called the SAT model, SAT, Structural Attitudinal Transactional. And what I'm trying to get at is, is to be holistic, that in any complex system like Assyria, you have structural issues, you know, the, the infrastructure and institutions that, that meet people's basic needs, governance, security, economy. You have attitudes, like you were talking about, you know, relations between people, between groups and society, uh, tensions between ethnic groups. Um, and then you also have transactional issues, which are short-term behavioral interactions between sort of leaders. And, and you have to actually keep your eye on all three. Yeah. And not think that by doing one, you're going to actually lead to a systems change. Systems change needs uh, progress at all three of those levels. So that's another thing about Syria is to think about, well, there, are, there probably are agreements that need to be mediated. So there are transactions that need to happen. There are structures that need to be rebuilt. But there are also attitudes that need to be, be built and shaped and changed over time. So how do we keep our eye on all three of those as opposed to just saying, hey, you know, if we mediate an agreement um, and we, we, we have a new inauguration of a new leader, then we're done. Um, and it just doesn't, just doesn't work that way. Well, we've seen that with, uh, with Israelis and Palestinians, right? I mean, right. we've seen that for how much, 30 years, whatever, 40 years? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there have been peace pacts, but it's never made the difference because the attitudes haven't changed. Right. Uh, you know, I do know that they've had, at the University of California in Irvine, they've had programs where Palestinian and Israeli, I mean, kids who are, um, Palestinian and Israeli from uh, go in and, and go to camp together and do stuff. They've had programs like that where they do change attitudes in these young people about really seeing, hey, we're, we're really more alike than we're different. Right. And that's changing attitudes, but um, right. it's, it's a tough situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one where, um, I mean, the Israel-Palestine situation is one where they've, they've kind of been, at, the three structural attitudinal transactional have largely been out of sync with each other. So Sometimes we'll get success at the negotiation table, but this, but structurally on the ground, the situation is is very, is unsustainable in lots of ways from, from a security perspective or economic perspective, and and that ends up you know um, 
causing an infraction of whatever agreement there was, and then that worsens um, relations, and, and so we get, we get attitudes where people are sort of more hopeful or more pessimistic, um, and, and over time they just get more and more, I think, resigned to sort of endless conflict, which, which also makes it really difficult to, to, to work. Um, and I so, think part of that has been and that, you know, we've had diplomats that are not trained in negotiation and mediation who've been trying to broker this stuff, you know? Right, I mean, it right. seems to me that seems a bit, hopefully that they're going to be taking your classes, these people who are going to be diplomats, that they are going to learn these conflict resolution things so that they can do some uh, attitude changing at at the level, but we are just about out of time. So, yeah. um, wonderful book. We are speaking with Robert Resigliano, our wonderful professor from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, "Making Peace Last: A Toolbox for Sustainable Peacebuilding." And Robert, you want to give your website so people can learn more about all the great work that you're doing? Sure, they're, they're, they can go to makingpeacelast.com or look for Making Peace Last on uh, Facebook. Wonderful. Well, we will have you back again. Please keep in touch with us because we'd love to follow up on all the great work you're doing. Great. Thank you very much, Mari. Okay, Robert. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. And visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, write us an email about what's important to you, and just we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much. Peace. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.